And Friday morning, I was clearing up the breakfast dishes and had Radio 5 Live running. Um, so there was a lot of chat and debate. The presenter talking how about at midnight on Friday, uh, gay marriage uh, became legal, uh, at least in England. I, I didn't follow the exact uh, detail of the extent of that legalization at this point. And there was a bit of a, a debate on uh, about that, whether this was a great day for Britain or not. A uh, representative from Stonewall, a gay rights activist group, uh, spoke of how the legalization of gay marriage is not the end of the campaign as far as they're concerned. Uh, they're looking at the legalization of gay marriage and saying, well, um, that's a first step, but what we want to see is gay marriage acceptable and accepted right throughout our society, including the church. I was quite struck as I listened to that because um, the day where somebody in my position who has to decide which marriages they conduct or not, uh, being faced with decisions that uh, we wouldn't have contemplated until very recently, that day feels like it's getting closer all the time. The next story dealt with steps that are being considered to prevent children from accessing hardcore pornography. Research spoke of how six-year-olds currently, as things stand, have access to the worst kinds of pornography. Atvod, a video on demand regulator, was calling for the law to be changed to require pornography pornographic sites to carry out age checks before they're accessed. These are unprecedented times. I don't think either of those two stories would have made any sense to us even 15, 20 years ago. I don't think we would have had the categories ready to be thinking about these things. These are difficult times to be faithful to the living God. We're encountering situations that our parents could only have uh, never have imagined, probably. But I think it's a mistake to say that these are the only or the first difficult times that God's people or the church have ever encountered. And certainly in the opening verse of our passage this evening, I hope you'll have it open before you, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says there will be terrible times in the last days. Paul, we're imagining Paul in his cell, a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. But his preoccupation as he comes towards the end of his life is not his own plight. It's not, woe is me, I'm in prison. All he cares about is all he's ever cared about, and that's the gospel going forward. He wants to ensure that Timothy, who, who isn't behind the bars but is free, will take every opportunity to, to live faithfully as a, a gospel minister. And in this context, Paul's thinking about the evil times in which he and Timothy are living. And he thinks of Timothy as young assistant. And when you read the whole of this chapter, it seems like there's two things going on in Paul's mind. 
Timothy seems so weak and the opposition seems so strong. It seems unfair, almost like it's an impossible kind of a task that a a man like Timothy should be given this huge responsibility of carrying and sharing the gospel. So in this passage, chapter 3 of his letter, Paul begins by painting a vivid picture of the times and the culture in which they are living. And then in the second half of the chapter, he addresses Timothy and encourages him to live faithfully in that environment. In spite of the strength of the evil in the prevailing culture, and in spite of any weaknesses or inexperience that Timothy might have, Paul's encouraging him to live faithful to what he's learned. The chapter then works by way of a contrast, the first half and the second half, I think. And if we look carefully at this text, we'll be able to see how Paul urges Timothy to live at odds with a prevailing culture. And if we start popping those slides up, Graham, I think slide number two shows us that people, Paul says in verses one to five, they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then the next slide we see that in contrast, Timothy is to be willing to suffer for the gospel. A person who's a lover of pleasure doesn't want to suffer, but that's the call on Timothy. And then the next slide, people, Paul says, will be always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Timothy, in contrast, next slide, is to continue in the God-breathed Holy Scriptures. And then the next slide, Graham. We'll leave that up for a while. The next slide, sorry. Oh, when it comes. (laughs) So let's look at the first of these difficult times in which Paul says Timothy is living. It's those first five verses. And I'm going to Rather than go through this list, you'll appreciate if I go through a list of 19 different vices and take even a minute on each, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a long and arduous journey. I think verse 4 probably captures this pretty well, probably serves as a summary. People who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It starts there in verse 2 that people are lovers of themselves. And it goes right down to verse 5. People who have a form of godliness but deny its power. Just very quickly, these last days, Paul wrote these words nearly two millennia ago. um, But they have a pretty contemporary ring. So in a way that's quite confusing because it sounds like he's talking about his times. But we would look at the list and say, well, that sounds like our times too. So which were the last days? Paul's times, our times? When Paul talked about the last times, he wasn't talking about some time way in the future. He wasn't talking necessarily about the very last days. He's talking about the times that have been set in motion by the coming, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The last days have begun for Paul. But the last days are still the times in which we live. And that's why it's normal and natural that the two, uh, the two very different times in which we live and Paul lived 
can both fit this descriptor so well. Dallas Willard reflects on Paul's depictions of his culture and he says, this has been the end stage of every successful human society that's arisen on the earth. Invariably such a society begins to believe that it's responsible for its success and prosperity and begins to worship itself. It begins to rebel against the understandings and practices that allowed it under God to be successful in the first place. The human decline into what Paul expressed to Timothy is inevitable, he says. I don't know if you picked up on that. He's basically saying that cultures, once they become successful, always implode. They always eat themselves. I I think I can see a little of that in post-Second World War Britain. A prosperity kicks in. But before long we begin to believe our own hype and we drift from our roots in God. If there's something inevitable and predictable about a culture reflecting Paul's lesson, I think there is. I want to focus actually on a bit of the list that surprised me. Um, It might be worth uh, noticing this. Verse 5. He talks in verse 5 about people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. This needs a more careful look. If there's some very obvious evil here, and some of the stuff in the list is very, very obvious, then Paul seems to be talking about something less obvious here. About something that even has an appearance of godliness about it. If people appear godly or interested in God, we tend to give them the benefit of the doubt. So we say to ourselves, if If somebody comes to church, we might say, well, that's a good indicator that they're in a right relationship with God. Why else would they be around? You can't surely be here in a place like this on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings and not be interested in God. The prophet Isaiah challenges that notion. Um, Isaiah chapter 1 is a very sobering passage And it's a prophecy that tells us that in some circumstances, God finds our religion empty and he hates it. But folks, that's not a a phenomenon of the the time only of the prophets. It seems to me that this phenomenon, godliness that denies God's power, is alive and well today. There are lots of people who want to be in churches who don't want to bow their knee before the living God. They want to have their children baptized. They themselves want to be confirmed. But it's all externalism. They want somehow to to be able to, to be close to God, to be in his general sphere, but to keep him at arm's length. They refuse finally to let God be God. They don't see in their sin their need of God. They haven't opened their lives to his unmerited grace. There's no hunger for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And what does Paul say about people who have a godliness but who deny its power? What does he say? Have nothing to do with them. What does he mean? 
Surely he means something like this. Don't fall under their spell. Don't let ungodly people gain an influence over you, even in the church. Don't let people who don't love Jesus set the vision for your church. Do you think that's possible? The churches are led by people who, who deny the power of God. I think it is. Don't let them take the community captive with their vision for the church. People have all sorts of visions for the church. Some want it to be a social club. Some want it to be a social work agency. Don't allow them. Don't let people who won't submit to Jesus Christ have the privilege of discipling your children and your young people. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Stay away from them, says Paul. So Paul paints this picture of a an incredibly ungodly society and one that's encroaching on the church and he urges Timothy to have nothing to do with them but then he goes further. He urges Timothy to live in a stark contrast to all of this. So if we can characterize the ungodly life as loving pleasure rather than loving God then verses 10 to 13 Timothy is to be willing to suffer. Uh, Next slide please Graham. Thank you. Paul calls Timothy back to his own example of his willingness to suffer. So look at verse 10. You know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Paul's basic point is that a lot of people around are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, but he's shown himself to be a lover of God rather than a lover of pleasure. But, but he goes on, doesn't he? And he says things that move the debate beyond a, a little conversation between Paul and Timothy. Look at verse 12. He says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul wants Timothy to live like him. He wants his young protege's life to be marked by the kind of love for God that stands in contrast to to pleasure-loving And he makes that crystal clear by using the phrase, you, however. There are two of these in our passage this evening. There are two big contrasts that Paul wants to set up between Timothy and the culture around him. Folks, I wonder if there's a truth here that we're in danger of losing sight of in the church. A disciple is only a disciple if he shares in Christ's life. And that includes sharing in his pain and his suffering and his rejection and his crucifixion. So in Romans 6, Paul asks, 
Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? The New Testament church had a very strong sense that baptism, because they saw it lived out in total immersion, meant that you are immersing yourself into a new reality. You're baptized into Christ. Your life becomes subsumed into his. To love God in the way that Paul wants Timothy to do here means we turn our back on the relentless pursuit of pleasure. We live at odds with our culture and maybe even much of the culture of the church. You, however, it's a big, a big transition in verse 10. We said at the outset that chapter 3 shows Paul urging Timothy to live at odds with his culture in two ways. The first way is a willingness to suffer rather than to pursue pleasure. The second is a willingness to continue in the truth in contrast to those who are opposed to truth. The next slide there, Graham. To see Paul's picture of those opposed to the truth, look at verses 6 to 9, and we'll get a bit of an idea of it there. He says in verse 8 that these men oppose the truth. He says in verse 7 that they're always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. And when you, you read the whole paragraph, you get a sense of the havoc that these guys, these men, are wreaking in the Ephesian church. Paul says in verse 6 that they're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. We notice this, if you remember, back in our studies in 1 Timothy, that there's a problem with women in the Ephesian church. He speaks in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy of widows whose sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ. He's talking here about women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Even if you read endless commentaries, it's hard to be sure what the problem is here. But we know that there's some vulnerability in the Ephesian church and that false teachers are exploiting it. John Stott offers this insight. He says, The women chosen as victims... Paul refers to as little women, a term of contempt for women who were idle, silly, or weak. Their weakness was double. First, they were morally weak, loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Their sins were to them both a burden and a tyrant. And the false teachers worming their way into their home played upon their feelings of guilt or infirmity. Secondly, they were intellectually weak, Unstable, credulous, and gullible. They were the kind of women who would listen to anyone, and at the same time, they could never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Constitutionally incapable of reaching any settled convictions, they were like little boats tossed hither and thither by a storm. In such a state of mental confusion, people will listen to any teacher, however specious. Such women, weak in character and intellect, are easy prey for door-to-door religious salesmen. These are unscrupulous, false teachers 
And they do what false teachers do. They go and find a place of weakness for their teaching. Paul's dead set against them, and that's very evident in the passage. He says that they're like Janes and Jambres opposing Moses. Who? Maybe you know the Bible quite well, and you, you just feel, oh, I have a blank there. They're not in the Bible, but they are in Jewish tradition. And you'll recognize the role that they play in Jewish tradition. Janes and Jambres are the chief magicians in Pharaoh's court. So if you remember when Pharaoh or Moses comes in before Pharaoh, the, the magicians in Pharaoh's court stand in opposition. I think it's very interesting what Paul does here. Because by comparing the false teachers to Janes and Jambres, he basically says they're like magicians or sorcerers. They're false teachers, tricksters, and conjurers. And I think there's a second implication. I think he's comparing himself to Moses. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture, to compare yourself to Moses is a pretty big deal. Moses is Mr. Big in the Old Testament. He towers above everyone else. So here we have Paul quite unselfconsciously comparing himself uh, with Moses. How could he do that? Well, it's because of the similarities he has with Moses at the point that we're talking about here. Moses was a man who had God's word and who spoke God's word. Moses taught the law of God. Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul seems to be saying he and Moses are somehow together in all of this whether it's the law of God, whether it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the teaching of Paul and the teaching of Moses, it's God's truth. And if you stand in opposition to it, you stand in opposition to the truth. A little earlier we were talking about false teachers who love pleasure rather than God, and we noticed something more subtle than whole-scale opposition. Paul referred in verse 5 to people having a form of godliness but denying its power. They want the trappings, but they don't really want God. Not really. And there's a similar thing in these verses because we have people here who, who don't say, I won't listen to teaching. In fact, they're very open to having teaching. Paul says they're always learning. But they're never able to acknowledge the truth. That is, despite hearing countless sermons or being part of many Bible studies, there's a sense in which this man or this woman won't finally submit to God's Word. They love a good chat and they're interested in starting and keeping the conversation, if you've heard that language. They sound intellectual and impressive. But the long and the short of it is, God's word's a curiosity to them. They remain the authority in their own lives and not God. A final or slide number nine, Graham. For the second time in the second half of our chapter, Paul draws a contrast between what he sees in the lives of the false teachers and those who go after them and what he longs to see in Timothy. 
He says, verse 14, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. Paul gives Timothy two reasons why he should continue in what he's learned. He points both to what he's learned and to whom he, from whom he has learned it. From whom did Timothy learn? Well, we know that he learned in his youngest days from his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. We're told that in chapter 1, verse 5. But his training didn't, begin, didn't end at home. Timothy had learned so much from Paul, and that's what Paul's stressing here. In the first two chapters of the letter, Paul begged him to keep as a pattern of sound teaching what you heard from me, chapter 1, verse 13, and entrust to reliable men the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Paul wants Timothy to keep going Because Paul is the one who set Timothy on his way. Paul not only led Timothy to Christ. Paul not only laid hands on him at his ordination. Paul's trained him. He's the apostle. The one who brought the message of the gospel. Who taught it to Timothy and trained him to share it. If you were with us this morning in our service, you'll have heard Stanley tell us of his experience of being mentored by a man who loved the gospel. His name was Jimmy McCullough, and he was a BB leader here. And I'm going to guess, Stanley, that that was quite a while ago. It wasn't yesterday that happened. But the influence has been enormous on Stanley's life. And then there's Stanley Mills himself. And the people whom he has befriended and mentored. To whom he has passed on the gospel. With whom he has shared his life. I remember moving to East Belfast and I thought half the people in East Belfast had been influenced by Stanley Mills. These relationships matter. Second Timothy is all about Timothy, Paul wanting Timothy to keep going. I've passed it on to you, son. Now pass it on to others who can pass it on to others. Folks, this is the kind of church we want to be. When Paul urges Timothy to continue in his teaching, he not only asks him to look at who taught him, but also what he was taught. From your infancy, he says, verse 15, you have known the holy scriptures, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't believe the message just because it came from me, Paul says. Believe the message I shared with you because you know that it's from Scripture. You see that it's the message that points to Jesus, that it's the message that saves all of that he has in that one short verse. Folks, we're 
running out of time. I could have probably taken verse 16 and had a good stab at preaching a sermon on that verse alone. You maybe know it. Very, very famous in scripture. I wonder do we believe it? That God's word is his very own breath and that it's useful in all the ways that we could possibly need. I wonder do we believe that? There's a story I love about Martin Luther where he told of his sense of, of God's word being able. He was talking about the inroads he was making for the gospel in his reforming work. And he said one day, see how much God has been able to accomplish through me, though I did no other than pray and preach. The word did it all. While I sat still and drank beer with Philip and Amsdorf, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. God's word did it all. Folks, the word does do it all. If we, each one, are people continually returning to the word, allowing the Lord to build us up through it, if we then commit to passing on what we have seen in the word to others, we can be sure that the word will do it all. God will work through his word. Folks, we're finished here for this evening. We said at the outset that we live in times of great difficulty. And we saw that in the first half of our chapter. But twice we saw Paul challenge young Timothy to live at odds with his culture. Verse 10, but as for you, verse 15, you, however, continue in what you've learned. I was trying to find a a wording for a conclusion and I don't know if you've ever had the experience of using any of John Stott's Bible Speaks Today's. Sometimes you try to rewrite his wording into something of your own only to come up with something less good. So I thought I'd read you his closing paragraph. Paul says to us, as he said to Timothy, stand firm. Never mind if the pressure to conform is very strong. Never mind if you're young, inexperienced, timid, and weak. Never mind if you find yourself alone in your witness. You have followed my teaching so far. Now continue in what you've come to believe. You know the biblical credentials of your faith. Scripture is God-breathed and profitable even in the midst of these grievous times in which evil men and imposters go on from bad to worse, it can make you complete and it can equip you for your work. Let the word of God make you a man of God or a woman of God. Remain loyal to it and it will lead you to Christian maturity. Let's pray.